0: Okay. Shh. Student Radio, Radio Maastricht. Maastricht. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to Student Radio Maastricht, the platform where we allow students to create content as easily as possible. Today we present Crossroads, the traveling podcast by Florian Bohr. Today's episode When Things Go Wrong. Enjoy. Before going on a trip, it is tempting to spend a lot of time researching and planning. You want to see all there is to see and make the most of the time you have. And you may be worried about running into a situation you didn't anticipate. But here's the thing. You can plan out every little detail of your trip. There will always be things that do not go according to plan. You cannot prepare everything. why would you? One of the most exciting aspects of traveling is when something unexpected happens, or when you surprise yourself doing something you never thought you'd be able to do. Of course, there's also the other side, when things happen you did not wish for, when you find yourself in a place or situation you absolutely did not intend to be in. but that is often where the real adventure lies. And, of course, the best story. My name is Florian Boer, this is Crossroads, and in this episode, we'll hear two stories of things not quite working out as planned. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good cat, actually. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I think this should be fun. Hi,
1: my name is Marlene. I'm 27 years old. Uh, we're from, or I'm from Holland. Uh, we live in Utrecht, which is in the center of Holland, and I live together with Detlef, also my traveling partner.
2: Yeah, I'm 31 years old, <laughs> and yeah, we're traveling for almost six months now.
1: I think the whole idea started when we were traveling through Southeast Asia. Um, we were renting out like a lot of scooters and um, we always really enjoyed the freedom of going wherever you want to go and taking roads that other travelers don't take. So that's when the whole idea started.
0: And how long ago was that?
1: I think it was at the beginning of our
0: 2012
1: relationship.
2: or something?
1: Yeah, the whole idea was in our heads but it's not like a whole four years of preparation. We kind of started without that much (laughs) preparation. Like I didn't even have my driving license. So like six months before we left, I got my driving license and I never drove a bike in Holland. So the whole idea was there, but like the preparation was a little bit gone. Started in the north of Colombia. A friend of ours helped us buying the bikes. He spoke, well, Spanish, which was kind of necessary to buy them. Then we drove down to Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, north of Chile, north of Argentina, and then back into Santiago, or into Chile again, driving south now.
0: I met Marlene and Detlef while traveling in Patagonia. They were among the few people heading south when most travelers were going north to escape the cold fall and winter in southern Chile. The two of them were very friendly and appeared to be quite happy with their motorbikes and the freedom of going anywhere they wanted. They shared with me one particular motorbike adventure that had happened to them a few months earlier. So so you were saying at some point you were going through the, the salt flats, right? In Bolivia? Yeah.
1: The only thing we knew about the salt flats is that everyone was warning us not to ride on it with your motorbike because your motorbike would like when there's water on the salt flats which is salty water um, don't ride on it because your motorbike will break down but somehow most of the motorcycle travelers did try it somehow so it was like a kind of a we didn't really know what to do
2: we met uh, yeah. for yeah for other uh, Guys on motorbikes in this hostel in a unit, and then we decided to go with uh, with a group, so six people. The salt flats were dry, so it was perfect.
1: Really crazy experience when you drive and you see like right, and you see the other, yeah, right is next to you, and there's nothing you can see like some mountains, but it's really like a dream. And it was was a perfect day.
2: But then we went camping on one of the islands, and this was also super nice. We made a fire, we cooked together, and we pitched our tents.
1: Mm, Really nice stars.
2: Yeah, it was super nice. And then it started raining at maybe 11, something like that. So I was already thinking, "Mm, uh (laughs) uh-oh.
1: like the whole It rained night. the whole
2: night really hard. So the next morning we woke up and there was like maybe 20 centimeters of water on the salt flats.
1: It was like a mirror. It yeah. was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But it was really wet. Yeah. And then the, the other mistake came that um, the four other motorcycle travelers decided to go the same way back to uni, and we wanted to head south, more south, so we decided, the two of us, to split from the group and take a different road. And but you,
0: but both groups decided to just go into the water and, and go for it? Yeah, you yeah. have to. You yeah,
1: can. you don't have enough food,
0: and no water, and, and
1: there's nothing, to, there's nothing on the on the island you can, no. it's just really small, and there's just cactus on it, and yeah salt and we didn't have enough water for like yeah we could survive like one day but then the next day you would have the same problem
2: yeah yeah we just had to leave
1: <laughs> yeah we said goodbye and i said good luck and uh, you will be fine and then we were already riding like and then you said yeah, we i don't really have a good feeling about this maybe we should just go together back to the
2: yeah to i was just finish. looking over my shoulder and uh, we saw the island getting smaller and smaller yeah. and it just felt a bit... <coughs> yeah, it felt wrong to continue on your own. But then we started driving and driving for one hour and uh, the land was getting closer and closer. So we were very happy, the bikes were doing fine. and, uh, and <laughs> But then, the clo- closer we get to the land, the um, softer the ground became. So every time we tr- we tried to get on the land, the bikes were sinking the in the mud.
1: Yeah, in the mud, or sometimes you would just see like it was ice, and then like with the uh, scratches in it, mm-hmm. like you could just. P- into it and then uh, you, you didn't you don't know how deep it is and then sometimes you felt like your the wheels were getting in and then I don't know I thought it was really scary because <laughs> you have no idea what's underneath it and there were no people we didn't see anyone the whole time so
2: yeah but then when we got back on the south and we started r- riding again the bike of Marlene stopped Yeah. so then we thought, shit, shit, we were looking at the map and it was the next point to get on land was
0: far. <laughs> like how far? Do you remember? No, I don't remember.
1: You could see like a little, um,
0: Maybe little, little, or
1: little, little village.
2: Maybe it was like 50 kilometers. Or something. We decided to that I started pushing her. So I was just driving, and with my right leg, I, I, I put my right leg on her bike, on the back of her bike, and we st- continued driving like this. But because we were driving like this, the, a lot of water came into my bike. We were driving for one or two hours like this, yeah. and then we came closer to the land again. And the uh, surface was getting softer and softer again. So we were thinking, shit, how are we getting, how can we get on the land? So then my bike stopped. I could start my bike again. So then we decided to split up. So I, Marlene, Marlene, Waited uh, with her bike, and I was con- I continued driving to get help. But after maybe five kilometers, my bike stopped again, and I couldn't start it again. So I parked my bike, and I, s- I started. I started walking to the land because I could- there were there were houses. But it was like maybe twelve kilometers. with your your boots and motorcycle clothes. I was just walking through water, and the surface was mud. So the closer you get to the land, the muddier it gets. So in the end, I was just walking with boots that were twice as big with mud.
1: (laughs) I think after 10 minutes of standing, like waiting at the bike, I was like, Oh, I think I can't wait here like just doing nothing and wait till there. Maybe it's help So I was kind of following it. I had my camera with a big zoom. So I tried to zoom in and I Found out that he parked his bike and then he started walking to the Yeah to the village Now was like yeah, I can wait here, but it's gonna take hours so I started walking as well and I it was really hard to walk. It was like a four hours walk or something. I don't know.
2: I continued to the land and I found I found a guy with a big jeep. But he said to look for somebody else.
0: So and why? Do you know? He just didn't want to do
2: it, or yeah, he didn't want to do it. He was working on his jeep, and uh, I don't know. The same ta- at the same time, uh, a pickup truck appeared. They wanted to leave the village, so I jumped on it and uh, I asked for help. And they were very friendly, so they said, "Yeah, no problem." And I just jumped in the car, and they started driving. And I said, "Are you sure this is okay? Is this the right route? The ground is really soft, and uh, is this the right car? Do you have the right tires?" And they said, "Yeah, we're Bolivians. We know what we're doing." And <laughs> but then after maybe five kilometers or something, the car sank in the mud. Stuck completely. So I was, we were with four people. Pushing the car and putting stones under the wheels, didn't work out.
1: And I saw, like, after two hours, uh, a jeep driving on the, on the saltpet. And I was like, yes, help, help. It's going to be okay. And then all of a sudden the jeep also stopped. And you can see it from a distance. But it's, I was very disappointed. <laughs> and then you walk and you know it's, they're actually quite close. But it still takes like one and a half hours to get there. And then I got there. And then they were trying to push the car out of the mud. And that didn't work out. So I continued walking to the village to get another jeep to take the car out and our motorbikes.
2: So then I was asking the guys, what do you think? Can I leave the bike on the salt flats and it's nobody gonna steal our luggage? And they said, yeah, maybe there are lots of people there and maybe you can push the bike back to the land. I like was
1: we had, we still had like our laptop on the, one of the bikes and because they said like there's still people on the salt flats they might steal it so he went back to the bike while i was in the village i finally found one guy the first guy you went to with the gp he said okay we're we're gonna i'm gonna help you
0: what do you know what made him change his mind from the first statement blonde hairs probably
1: blonde hairs and i was really desperate (laughs) And then he started driving, but it was already like 5 o'clock, so it started to get dark. And he decided somehow not to help the car out, but just to search for the motorcycles. And
0: I, uh. (laughs) yeah, but
1: then I didn't have the GPS locations because he had the GPS locations. So I had to kind of, yeah, imagine where the bikes were when we started walking, which was quite difficult. I started looking for that left, and we started to sign, it started to get dark, so we were signing with uh, the lights of the car, and we didn't get any reaction back, and it really started to really get dark, and the guy was also a bit nervous, because he was riding, and he was like, (gasps) and then he turned like the steering wheel, because there were like big scratches in the um, salt flats, and they're really afraid of, um, there are these air bubbles underneath the salt flats. So whenever you go and ride over it, your car can just sink in. And then I, of course, couldn't find the bikes back. So it was like kind of a waste of time to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to ride on the salt flats in the, during the nighttime. Then we got back and left wasn't in the, in the little village. So I walked back to like the beginning, like to the beach. <laughs> and then I saw like one little light of left like crossing the the salt flat. And I saw like the other light that was from the car who was still stuck. So then we signed to each other like to say that, like to show that we saw each other. And then all of a sudden you were there at nine.
2: (laughs) Yeah, with all the luggage.
1: With the laptop and a lot more luggage.
0: All of the luggage or did you leave some there? Uh, I took everything. Yeah, it must have been quite heavy as well, no? Yeah, I think the first
2: couple of kilometers I just pushed the bike, but the mud was so deep and sticky that it was not possible anymore. So I think after four kilometers maybe, I decided to to just remove all the luggage, put it on my shoulder and just walk back. And it worked? Yeah, it worked. Then we had to leave the bikes for one night on the salt flats, which is really bad, of course.
1: Uh, like the rule is that whenever you go on the salt flats, clean them as soon as possible because the yeah. salt gets into ele- in your electronics. And we were, of course, already two nights on the salt flats with the camping night.
0: Yeah. Uh, before you continue, do you, uh, do you know what happened to the three guys with the car?
1: Yes. They got help. Yeah, we heard the next day that um, they arranged someone from a different city with like a really good car.
2: And they got
1: out like around 11 in the night, something like that. So they got stuck also for like six hours or something. (laughs) We feel (laughs) really, really sorry for them. (laughs) That's like, I think they're never gonna help anyone anymore (laughs) because this is the worst what can happen, but yeah.
2: The next morning we went, the guy with the jeep that helped Marlene helped us again. We jumped in the car and then we could find both bikes.
1: With the GPS?
2: Yeah, with the GPS points. Yeah, we were very happy. And
1: I couldn't really look anymore because my, my eyes were burned because of the sun. And that's what he said, like the, the guy who helped us also said, like a lot of people um they have like an engine problem on the salt flats and they start walking and they don't have water and they um their eyes get burned because the every the reflection is so strong um need good sunglasses
0: it, normally yeah uh,
1: and yeah. but I have these shitty raven hipster glasses which is not really good <laughs> and then um yeah then they get lost and they just die on the salt flats and
2: that can happen.
1: That can happen. Yeah. But I can imagine it can happen, because in the night I was like, I, I couldn't really see.
2: Yeah, much. you just, you get snow blind.
1: Yeah, like for 24 hours. Yeah. Mm. And then we found the bikes, we washed them.
2: He pulled us out, we washed them, and uh, then they worked again. And
1: then Luckily. they worked again.
2: Yeah, there was just some uh, water on the spark plug. That was the only issue. The bikes were just totally fine again. Luckily.
1: Lucky, lucky, lucky. Yeah, and the funny thing is that we we of course went with uh, with other mi- motorcyclers, and two of them also had troubles.
2: Yeah, the German but guys with uh, big yeah, bikes. Yeah.
1: They had like their bikes, and also like th- they took the same road back, and one of the bro- bikes broke like really down I think yeah. like the last time we spoke to them they were still like
2: searching in for this parts. area
1: and searching for new parts to replace it so we yeah we are very lucky that our bikes are still running and that we made it to the south of Chile already
2: yeah at the end <laughs> we asked her each other the question, was it worth it? And yes, it was really worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Also, the riding on the big on the the layer crazy. of water, we we made this like little movies of each other and it was so much fun because it looks yeah, it looks really it's
2: super nice. It's
1: a really funny, funny feeling.
0: Yeah, so, can you imagine?
1: Yeah, it was worth it.
0: The situation that Marlene and Detlef had been in definitely wasn't an easy one. And still, they look back at it with joy. Another episode added to the collection of stories of their trip. Sometimes, it is exactly the unplanned, unwanted experiences that turn into the most cherished memories. Any last recommendations, words? Mm-hmm.
2: I would say you just have to do it. Drive on the salt flats. Mm-hmm. It's bad for your bike, even when it's dry, but it's worth it.
0: Yeah, so, I do. Yeah.
3: Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you get in. That's good. Two. One. one. <laughs> go. My name is Steven. Um, I was born in the Netherlands, but I lived in many places in Europe, and that's why I'm traveling as well, I suppose, just to see new things, because I get bored easily. Spain at 18, then oh, three yeah. and a half years London, then two and a half years Berlin, and now I've been traveling for 11 months. Travelling, I think, well, there's this quote that traveling is the only thing you can pay for that makes you richer, and I believe in that. It's, um, I think, one of the most enriching things you can do in life, especially the meeting uh, new people. Uh, That's why this time I traveled mainly alone as well to kind of enforce that, and, um, well, I'm, I'm happy with the results. At this time and age, everyone is going to Asia because it's really cheap. However, therefore, the um, real culture is not impossible to find, but it's harder to find. Whereas in South America, it's, it's kind of a middle way between cost culture and, and the way tourists have destroyed the things to do in the countries.
0: I came across Stephen while in Santa Cruz in Bolivia. We immediately got along well and spent the next few days going on little trips together. I would describe him as one of those long-term travelers, somebody who doesn't just go for a couple of months, but more like a couple of years. He took his time while traveling, sometimes staying in a place for a few months and seemed to enjoy every single moment of it. He told me about one specific experience he'd had in Peru.
3: I was on the road for about three to four months, I believe. Um, I wanted to visit the place called Iquitos. It's the biggest city in the world that cannot be reached by roads because they're, they're none, they're non-existent. So you either can fly there, which a lot of tourists do, or take a boat, which is a container ship. And it takes five days to get there, sleeping in a hammock, eating yep. rice and bread but it kind of added to the magic of arriving in the place because you really know how far away from everything it is if you spend five days on a boat with 200 other Peruvians and a couple of French. Um, I think when you fly, it, it loses a bit of the magic that you think, oh, I'm really in the middle of nowhere. The only thing I wanted to do was going into the jungle because you are in this secluded place, far from everything. Um, I thought it would be relatively easy, there are official tour agencies but triple the amount of unofficial tour agencies who will try to sell you the thing for less money but less quality as well. So when you go on about um, 500 meter stroll from your hostel to a restaurant or to the supermarket you will get approached four to five times by people on the street trying to sell you this jungle tour. They know everyone is there to do it. They know there's money to be earned. And it was quite challenging to do the research on these people. We spoke to a lot of people, me and this French guy we wanted to do together. And didn't really find anything satisfying because we wanted a real experience. I'm on my sixth phone right now, and at the time one of my phones was broken as well, so I went to a phone shop to get it repaired. And in this phone shop I started talking with this guy and he said, "Uh, Where are you from? Blah blah blah, what are you here to do? Obviously, the jungle thing, like everyone. Trying to do the extraordinary while doing the same as everyone else, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) This guy said to me, um, he used to work for the army which he uh, still does with his brother. He's in in anti-drug operation business. And he said he organizes survival-based tours in the jungle. And I was immediately intrigued because it's the first time I hear that. Usually it's quite organized. Like you get a cook with, you get your guide with, and you just go basically for a stroll in the jungle. But this seems like something more, right? Like making your own weapons, taking just some rice in your clothes, a flashlight and some repellent that doesn't work anyway. And just go into the jungle for five days. I was like awesome. I got back to the hostel, talked to my friend's friend, we met with him another time, he was also completely game. His English was great. He said he couldn't make it himself this time because he had other business to to um, do. However his other guides he said were also good. The thing was, at the time my Spanish wasn't great, so I really wanted an English-speaking guide. He said, it's no problem, and we trusted the guy, right? So we get picked up off the hotel in the morning, um, actually invited us for a beer before we went, and we had a beer with him, and he sent us off on this boat and told us where to get off to meet our our guide. And it was only the two of you? Only the two of us, yeah. Which, this is kind of what you want, because if you're with six people in the jungle trying to see wildlife, there's always someone sneezing or coughing or, or yelling something and, and the animals will go. Um, so we get up at this floating gas station on the water and we meet our guide and he's like, hi, how are you? And he's like, yeah, no, I'm blowing less." I was like, fuck, just paid near to 200 euros for this thing, five, six days. Why is this happening? Like, it all seems so good, right? Well, we were like, okay, let's try to make the best of of a bad situation. So we went with him and we were like, okay, we need to call Percy, the guy of the name, because, like... We explicitly asked for an English guide and an experience like this. I want to, I want to get all of it. So I don't want too much miscommunication with Spanish kind of not understanding half the things he's saying or whatever. The first day was a survival thing, but more of a new age survival thing because the first day we basically just spent, uh, asking around in these tiny villages of of huts and and straw to find anyone with a phone with credit and signal. So it was survival, but not the survival we were looking for. Uh, In the end, five hours later, we found someone with credit and signal and battery and we called him and he was like, kind of trying to deny that I asked for an English guide, but in the end, After a long, long conversation, he said he would send someone and the next day the guide would be there. He arrived and he spoke a total of five words of English, so we did the whole story again. And the third day, finally, after not doing many activities, because we were obviously trying to reach the sky all the time, uh, the third guide arrived who spoke a decent amount of English. Good enough to understand, he could explain things and was okay, so finally... You can go into the jungle. Um, this was after spending one night already in, in the forest, in the base camp, uh, where we had our sleeping places up in the trees, like belt of, of wood and, and palm leaves, uh, which you do for the snakes. Because they usually crawl on the on the floor during the nighttime. So we had another night in in the forest, I got a bit sick so we got back to the encampment for another night and the last night we went deep in the forest, like a long walk, uh, to try to see wildlife, um, fishing with a poisonous uh, plant to cut out the oxygen of the water, it was really cool. So you put the plant in the water. Well, First you get the plant, then you have to kind of smash it until it's uh, very fine. And if you put it in the water, it, it uh, extracts this white fluid, which cuts out the oxygen of the water. So everything that lives in there, fish, snakes, we didn't see any snake, but everything will float up to the surface to get oxygen. And then you can just grab them out of the water. So, so, so
0: it was like the kind of real survival jungle experience you were looking for? Yeah,
3: it was the real deal the, the, the last couple of days. Um, and you were like happy with that and everything, yeah so in well. general I mean it's a bit of a shame we wasted the two days however the second two days were good and the last night we were deep in the jungle didn't see much wildlife or anything we made some traps, caught turtles to eat which was interesting
0: How did and quite taste? tasty it's quite tasty yeah
3: better than crocodile anyway so the last night we heard thunder in the distance and we're like, okay, like, let's just chop down some trees here, like small trees, not big trees, and make the encampment on the floor because it's gonna rain soon. We're like, yeah, okay. So we made this little roof, basically put some palm leaves on the floor to uh, lay on and place our mosquito nets under, under the leaves. The rain got worse and worse and the guide who usually just slept in the open air, he said, Can I come under your roof as well? Obviously we said yes and he moved my mosquito net, my friend's mosquito net and he just laid under the roof with us. When I went to bed, as you would call it, my palm leaves and mosquito net, um, I realized that when he moved my mosquito net he caught about 70 mosquitoes and other insects in my net so I spent the first uh, hour and a half trying to kill them and uh, it was very uncomfortable and all the time new insects would get in and there was this, this rock in the middle of, of the place I was laying so I didn't catch much sleep as all the time I would be woken up by either mosquito or cockroach or whatever in my mosquito net. Eventually I got an hour of sleep and it was already light at the time, super hot, sleeping there in my, just in my boxer shorts, right? And obviously an hour is all I could get because by the time another insect was in my mosquito net, annoying my, my right leg, like on my calf, and I tried to kick it away, I was like, fuck, I, I was finally asleep why does this need to happen again i'd love to have another hour of sleep at least right and i kicked it and didn't still felt it and i kicked it again still there moving around and i kicked it again and then i look like what is this thing that is bothering me what is this thing that's keeping me from sleeping now and i look and there is this uh, snake You're full of adrenaline from, from moment one and time feels like it's slowing down so everything feels like it's taking a long time. I obviously crawled to the far corner of my mosquito net and sat there what felt like a couple of minutes staring at it and it was staring at me um, and I think it must have been five seconds in total right but it felt like minutes so I'm two meters tall and the mosquito net was too small for me, so the maximum distance would have been a meter. Yeah, pretty pretty shitty. But in, in the end, you're not scared because you're just adrenaline and things just happen. I called the guide, there's a snake in my mosquito net, please do something. And then it feels like another minute passes, which probably was 10 seconds, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Don't worry. And you think, don't worry, wasn't... how should I not worry? There's, <laughs> there's a snake in my mosquito net. He got his machete and kind of whipped it out. And I was there in my boxer's shoulder looking at him. Saying, okay, what should we do? He said, yeah, um, we'll need to kill it because it's, it's, <laughs> it's poisonous. I was like, what? Still full of adrenaline, right? And he asked, do you want to do it? I was like, "Um, yeah, (laughs) I'll do it. So I got my machete, which was laying a few meters uh, further on against the tree. And he kind of hit it with his machete, so it was a bit dizzy or whatever. It wasn't moving much, but it was still alive. And just one stroke, and I had to chop his head off, which I did. After chopping its head off, uh, we threw it in the fire that was still going because, I don't know, someone might step in it in the wrong way, I don't know. And as I said, this experience, it just happens, you don't really think. And then afterwards I was like, whoa. I asked the guy like, so you said it's dangerous, Uh, how dangerous are we speaking? He said, yeah, about 20 minutes kind of dangerous if it bites you you have 20 minutes to say say your prayer and i don't know say something to your friends and family and obviously we didn't carry any antidote and we were about four or five hours walking from the nearest village where they probably wouldn't have had it either so um, as i said the only thing you can do when it would have happened is i would have told the French guy, uh, some things to say to my friends and family, and by that time, there's probably foam running out of your mouth, and and that's it, you know? So there's nothing you really can do. I think the guy could have reacted a bit more compassionate. However, I think the fact that he didn't, didn't got us scared for further incidents because he was just like oh yeah really airy about it really like not caring like oh yeah like we need to kill it it's it's dangerous (laughs) if he if he would have freaked out uh, we would have been scared so a couple of days later i returned back in town and before uh, calling my parents i did the research with the photos i took of the animal and found out that I was pretty lucky in two ways, first of all, I didn't die and secondly, this type of snake, which is a family of the coral snakes, is very rare to see. So, I got that <laughs> and I killed it, which is probably a bad thing because it's, a, it's an endangered species, right? But in this situation, you don't really care about that, I suppose. And I called my parents and family and friends and told what happened. And I think still I'm, I'm pretty pretty calm about the whole situation. I mean, it's, it's not something that happens all the time. I'm not scared for it to happen again. Also because in that situation you just deal with it. You, you don't think about what is going on. It's, it's not something that would give me to go to the jungle again because it's been a it's been an extraordinary situation, it's not something that happens, a lot. Uh, what I did get from it is, is a good story, which I'm sharing with you now. <laughs> Very true, but you didn't get a
0: feeling of like, oh, I almost died, now I'm gonna like change my life.
3: No, and probably I had more near-death experience in night buses in Bolivia than that night in the jungle, even though you're asleep while these things happen.
0: This was part three of Crossroads. Music was recorded and produced by Dylan Youngblood and me. If you're interested check out Dylan's band Nairobi Golf Kid. You could also hear one song by Cloudkicker. Link is in the description. Also thank you to Marlene, Detlev and Steven for the interviews. Crossroads is part of Student Ready Maastricht a platform for interested students to produce audio podcasts as easily as possible. If you want to hear more from us, please like Student Ready Maastricht on Facebook and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. For this
3: jungle tour kind of thing, especially in places where it's very popular and kind of being abused as well, the only advice... Is If you want to go for a five-day tour, go to the place for 10 days, take two days to get to know people in the hostel who did tours and ask them directly for their experience, their tour agency and their guide and try to meet the guide from the beginning
2: and I suppose don't sleep on the floor in the jungle.